0: My first day on the job as Minister of Community Services, uh, just after I was sworn in, my new deputy minister, new to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must immediately come over to the office. We have a court case on right now. We're taking a child into custody, and the judge has to have the papers signed by you, the minister. And that was my introduction to my new job. So I walked over to the office. I reviewed the file, signed the papers, child was taken out of parental custody and taken into care. And it was a shock to me to realize, oh my God, that's my job.
1: You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin, and I am your host. For the rest of the summer, we're taking a break from the standard episodes of the podcast that follow the career path of a Nova Scotia MLA, and until September, we'll continue sharing some of the long-form interviews we held with former Nova Scotia MLAs. This week, I'll share my conversation with Francine Cosman. Francine has held a number of political positions during her time. She was the first mayor of Bedford. Later, she served as executive director for the Liberal Party of Nova Scotia. Then she became a liberal MLA herself, and under John Savage's term in government, she was deputy speaker. And under Russell McClellan's term in government, she was minister of several portfolios. She would have served around the same time as Eleanor Nori, someone you heard from a few weeks ago in the podcast. Some of the things we talk about in this interview are her hotly contested nomination meeting, the time when a protester jumped over the rails of the gallery in the legislature and landed on the House floor while she sat in the Speaker's chair, and how she balanced her own tendency to be independent-minded with the reality that she had also been appointed party whip for the Governing Liberal Caucus, and it was her job for ensuring other fellow independent-minded party members stayed. In line. Here's my conversation with Francine Cosman, which took place at her home in Bedford in November of 2015. So tell me what you did before you entered politics.
0: (laughs) Well, I began as a nurse. I, I studied as a nurse. I did a postgraduate in nursing in New York City after I graduated. And then I worked in nursing for several years and Eventually, I became a county councillor for the District of Bedford in the former Halifax County Council. And then we worked toward becoming an incorporated town. We were not satisfied with local government, on which we only had one voice. I was asked to run for mayor. I did, and succeeded at that. And then I was asked to become the president of the Nova Scotia Advisory Council, So I took that job on for four years and then I chaired a task force on the concerns of women on the status of women. On the status of women, okay. Which was ironic because many years later I became its minister. After the advisory council, I chaired a task force on the concerns of women, and I wrote a pretty substantive report on the need for change in Nova Scotia. And then I became the executive director of the Liberal Party and that led into me wanting to run as a provincial politician. And I did that in 93 and was elected under John Savage's government. And then again, when did we change government? Hmm, 98, 97? Then I became, then I was in the cabinet with Russell McClellan. I was Bedford's first mayor.
1: First Mayor. Yeah. That's a that's a big title.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So that's my history.
1: That's how you got here. And what particularly <clears throat> drew you to get involved in politics? What was it about um, all those experiences that made you think that politics was a worthwhile pursuit?
0: Uh, I could see so many needs for someone stepping up to the plate and being active on the issues. And in Bedford, the issue was garbage. That's what led me on to county council, and it led me on to being part of the group that wanted to form a town to take control of our own destiny around planning issues. Mm -hmm. And we took a garbage fight with um, Halifax municipality all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And those were part of my evolution into thinking, we need change and I want to be part of it.
1: And what was the fight over
0: The fight was that uh, the city of Halifax and Dartmouth and the county were looking for a new landfill site, and they wanted to put it in Bedford at Jack's Lake. And Jack's Lake has an exit brook that comes into Paper Mill Lake, which is where I had just moved to, bought my first home with my family, and that was our lake to swim in. And we knew if the dump went up in Jack's Lake, we'd have no lake to swim in. So it was a big impetus and um, it was the wrong location for the regional dump and ultimately it got located on the 101 highway. Hmm. So, but it took going to the Supreme Court to do it.
1: Really? And they ruled on the basis of...
0: They ruled on the basis that there had been somewhat of i I'm fishing in my memory, but somewhat of a flawed process for choosing the site that got chosen and that we had to go back to the drawing board for all this region... To make it more transparent and fair, and I can't, I, I can't remember the exact wordings of it, but it right. had to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so, rather than going back to the drawing board for the Bedford site, a new site was chosen.
1: Hmm. And that was happening while you are mayor. Or
0: no, that was while else? I was on county council, yeah, and then all of that led into the desire to pull ourselves as a unit, a municipal unit, out of the county and become our own town. Right. So we were the first new town in 69 years.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And what drew you to the Liberal Party?
0: That's really a hard question to answer, because at one time I was a candidate for the Tory party Hmm. because I wanted the government of the day, which was then a Liberal government, who were putting the garbage dump in Bedford... I wanted a government change. And so I put my name forward, didn't have a sweet clue what any of it was about. I was a young woman with two small children and didn't get the nomination and sort of dropped back from the politics of the day around party affiliation. And then it wasn't until 1993 that I ran for the Liberals and I had worked as their executive director. So I understood what they were about and I liked the people.
1: How did you get involved enough to be executive director?
0: I applied for the job. I interviewed for the job. And I had chaired the task force on the concerns of women the year before, which was done through the Liberal Party. They asked me to do that. Vince McLean was leader in opposition Mm -hmm. of the Liberal Party. And I had come out of the status of women, and he knew I could probably take that on, so I did. And then, when the executive director job came up, I interviewed for it.
1: So, before that, you hadn't really had any involvement with the party. No. Aside from those two things.
0: Oh,
1: Wow. (laughs) That's a big jump from not very involved to
0: being involved. Yeah, to being very involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big jump.
1: Uh So, I'm curious just to maybe before we jump into your experience with MLA, but being, I guess, an executive director of a party. Yeah. um, How. That sounds like it was probably a very fresh experience compared to what you've been doing previously. Yeah. What was what was that learning like?
0: It was huge, and we were in opposition. And I took on the role of doing a lot of fresh eyes on the old subject of how do we get nominations, what materials are out there to help people go through that process. I did a lot of writing materials. Hmm. Uh, I traveled the entire province running nomination meetings. And... Yeah, a lot of groundwork, talking to people, connecting with them politically, and just moving about the province with my finger on the pulse, so to speak. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a total learning curve at the start.
1: All right, Yeah. yeah. You did that for how long?
0: I think it was maybe four years, three years. And
1: then you went right into being a candidate. Yeah. Wow. And that was tough. <laughs> I mean, you would have had some experience from the nomination. Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> running nomination like meetings. Yeah, I definitely had experience because I also ran the federal nomination meetings because we had a linkage federal and provincial ran out of the same office here. Right. And, yeah, it was, it was a tough job and it was tough running for the nomination.
1: Were you contested when you were Oh,
0: God, yes. Hotly contested.
1: Wow. how about that.
0: <laughs> well, there was one other candidate. He was a retired RCMP. He was well-known in hockey circles. His son was a star player in hockey. And we had to, at that time, how it worked, you had to sign up new members and old members with a membership card in order to be eligible to vote. And so we were all out beating the bushes trying to drum up people to come and support us at the nomination meeting. Mm. And the night of the nomination, there were about between 1,100 and 1,200 people showed up to vote. And the rumor was there were going to be busloads of hockey players coming in to vote for my opponent. (laughs) That was pretty good, pretty tense. And the issue that night became my stance on abortion and pro-life versus pro-choice. And what had happened was there was a lot of misinformation floating around saying I was, you know, all for abortion and all this stuff. I had a nice little speech all written and... One of my supporters came to me and said, look, this is what's rippling around the room right now. And I said, okay, I'll throw my speech away and I'll get up and talk on the issue. So I did. And I won. Against the odds and the numbers, I won.
1: Wow. Yeah. And what were they saying, and what was your audience?
0: Well, the, the thing was, because I'm a feminist and I had worked for the status of women, they just assumed automatically that I was somebody who was not pro-life, okay? Pro-life is totally against abortion, mm-hmm. and I'm pro-choice. But I talked about the fact that I had teenage daughters, and if it ever happened that they came to me and said they were pregnant... Could they have an abortion? These were the steps I would take to advise them what they need to think about before they'd make such a life-altering change for themselves. And I talked about that. I really did give an overview of my own personal thinking on the subject and that I wouldn't want my family to have to have an abortion, but in the end, if that was their choice, I would support their choice. But it would only be done with a lot of knowledge Mm -hmm. about the pros and cons. So you couldn't say I'm totally for abortion or against abortion, but I I really talked about a reasoned approach to trying to make a hugely difficult decision. And that seemed to win over a lot of people that night.
1: Hmm. And if you hadn't said that, you don't think you would have won?
0: The odds were against me winning with the numbers that my opponent had signed up. Yeah, truly they were against me. And it was quite funny because John Young was the president of the party then, and he actually positioned himself at the end when the voting was all over on the other side of the stage next to my opponent, ready to put his arm up in the air, thinking that the other guy would have won because the numbers were there for him. But I actually won it because I think of my speech.
1: Interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny to call it back in my memory, but yeah.
1: yeah that is a. I remember when I was first moved to Halifax, I... Sat in on the nomination meeting Leslie. Oh yeah. When she first ran, and the whole room thought that Megan's signs were kind of half. It was just it looked a bit sloppier, and there wasn't as much. You could tell they had a fewer number of supporters in the yeah. room compared yeah. to Alexis McDonald, who was running against.
0: Oh know, okay.
1: At the time in Irving Carvery. and same thing. It was like it, it was once you heard the speech, or once everybody heard the speech. Yeah. The tone it switched. It isn't that yeah, neat. She walked out. So. Wow. Yeah, really. I mean, promising your story and hers are, seem very similar in the sense that, like,
0: it's it's interesting.
1: It's interesting, in and like a lot of these things seem to be like often just kind of a numbers game. Like, who can you bring out into Oh, but
0: it's, it's truly a to, numbers game. But truly, promising a numbers to game.
1: see that you can switch people's minds once they.
0: Yeah, well, you hope you can. You know, if you speak from the heart, if you speak giving it straight, people respect that. They don't respect the. Oh, I think I might do this or I might do that. You know, and I've always been a, sh- a straight shooter. I think that won the night.
1: So then you were in the general election campaign. Yeah. What were the issues that uh, were prevalent at that time during your first run? What
0: I didn't really recognize was the push for municipal reform. And we came into a very bankrupt government. I mean, every new government has to do a forensic audit and realize the pot's bare, you know. And there was always competition between the two cities, the county, and this little fledgling town of Bedford. Huge competition to see who could get a a business park up and going and who could attract new businesses and employment and taxes and all the rest. So what our difficulties were in John Savage's term, it was all about amalgamation and forcing the units to merge and Bedford had just become a new town in 79. I had been its first mayor, and it was it was a brutal time, just brutal. It was, you know, really a very difficult political time to be there. I didn't want amalgamation. I recognized that Bedford couldn't stand alone because we'd have been an isolated little island with a merged city all around us, and we were contracting services uh, we were sharing sewer and water services, we were sharing education uh, we were contracted for s- municipal services such as community services, social aspects. Mm-hmm. so there was no way we could stand alone and be exempted from the process and not have a really expensive, difficult time to n- to navigate contracts with with one major city around our borders. Mm-hmm. So it became a very dirty political fight out here, and um, my political opponent got quite a bit of support in the town against the amalgamation, and there was misinformation out there that wasn't easy to correct. Mm -hmm. And they held a plebiscite in Bedford, but Bedford was only one part of my riding because I went all the way out to the airport, and all those communities didn't hold a plebiscite. So it ended up that there was quite a quite a good strong turnout in bedford i think it was 6 out of 10 people voted against amalgamation but bedford was still only a small part of my total riding so i was doing this balancing act the juggling act i mean it was just ridiculous and in the end we all got merged and in the house when the bill came up i was the one who moved the motion to bring it to second reading, which meant it could then go to law amendments and the public could come in and have their say about it. I walked out of the legislature when the final vote came. I was so angry about it and still upset. That was not a recorded vote. Mm-hmm. And I, if it had been, I would have had to break with my party and vote against it. Mm-hmm. But the public doesn't know that. You know, that's mm-hmm. just the way it was. And I thought, oh, I'll never get reelected after this. But then I did. So I think it just proved that as much as there was so much anger and angst over it, the overall job I was doing got me reelected. I never thought I'd get reelected over that issue.
1: And when you say you, you walked out of the legislature when the vote was happening... Yeah, for about, the third vote. Right. So can you talk a bit about why, why not vote against it in the legislature?
0: Well, if I voted against it, I would have been kicked out of the party... I would have been kicked out of the caucus. I would have sat alone, like Andrew Younger is today, for his reasons. And I probably wouldn't have had any opportunity to succeed on the issues in my riding that I needed, and that was schools. Uh-huh. I had, I had m- so much growth out here. We needed schools, new ones, old ones repaired. And I thought, there's not going to be a cooperative response to the needs of this mm-hmm. community if I broke with the party.
1: And how is that like? How do you? Like, how is that communicated to you that you would be picked out of the party? Was it oh, an unspoken rule or a direct?
0: Oh, that's it's unspoken, but there was a lot of heat on me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, in, in many subtle, subtle ways. ways. The decision?
0: Oh, yeah there there was it, it was subtle. It was like somebody fairly well placed in the party would go, you know, give me the hand signals, and then they'd say nothing coming your way. You know, I knew I had I had a lot of pressure on me Hmm. yeah so
1: and had you tried to sway the party before that
0: oh yeah oh yeah I met with caucus on the issues I met with the premier yeah I did a lot of behind the scenes sweat work Hmm. but I didn't convince anyone to leave us alone you know and realistically I knew what we were facing because we would have been surrounded by a total municipal structure that we had to negotiate our way through contracts for services, etc. Nothing would have been easily done.
1: Without doing what the party did anyway. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Just maybe backing up a bit to uh, <coughs> when you first were elected, so what was the obviously you've been mayor of Bedford for a while. Before yeah, that one happened, term. Yeah, been involved in the Liberal Party so you probably had perhaps a bit closer look at what you were getting into but what was the, I guess feeling and uh, process of becoming an MLA like?
0: <clears throat> well, because it had been so hotly contested as a nomination, the local liberal association was fully behind my opponent. And so when I won, I then had to build bridges into my own association to get them to support me and to build a team. In the general election? Yeah, for the general election. Mm-hmm. And that was tough at first because they didn't want me there. I won the nomination, but I wasn't their candidate. But I worked with each one, and they came on board and came on board strongly.
1: And then when you were actually elected in the legislature, (coughs) uh, how was the transition to that role?
0: Well, because of these issues, because of the municipal issues, and we had union issues, uh, it was a very difficult role. It was a tough role. I had no idea what I was getting in for. I hated... Losing my independence, having to vote the party line is our system. It's our British inherited system, and I found that very difficult because I'm I'm very much an independent thinker. Mm -hmm. So that was the toughest role for me, was learning to toe the party line.
1: How how soon would you have been expected to...?
0: Well, the amalgamation issue landed in our laps right away. Toward the end of Dr. Savage's term, we had the, I think it was called the Stein decision, and it had to do with union rights and labor rights. And we had pretty well a shutdown and a riot on budget day in the legislature. And punches were thrown at the premier, and we had the place crawling with police to get us all out safely. And we didn't deliver the budget that day because the union took the house over. And I was deputy speaker at the time. I stayed in the legislative chamber with all the seats up top filled with union members who were very aggressive and yelling and chanting and stamping their feet. I thought the old house was going to fall down because they were there you know, stamping their feet. I could picture those old plaster ceilings coming down. And I stayed in the chamber until a very drunk union member leaped over the railings, landed on the floor of the house, walked over to Dr. Savage's desk and started breaking on it, smashing it. And that's when the police ran in and all hell broke loose, so... Wow. Yeah, so it's, you know, it was <laughs> sort of an adventurous day in my life as a politician. And that's when I got removed from the chamber out the back door because they said, you're not safe, you can't that's stand in it. My mental attitude was, I'm the deputy speaker of this house, this chamber is my responsibility. And I just sat at my desk staring at a group full of wow. chanting, roaring,
1: angry people. Were you, were you the only one? Yeah, okay, I was sure. the only one. Wow.
0: Yeah, everybody else was... Outside, waiting to see what was going to happen. Right. They did encourage me to get the hell out of there, but I I right, didn't. Right. Yeah. I thought if I sat there calmly, you know, it would <laughs> calm them down. And at one time, one of my constituents who was loaded beyond belief up in the gallery said, three cheers for the lady!" And I thought, "Oh God!" You know, and <laughs> it was really, oh, I would have made a good cartoon.
1: <laughs> so, this isn't your first term. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, you mentioned also being, uh, being a party whip. I'm curious yeah. how that role, because you mentioned also being very independent minded. Yeah. And of course, whip is responsible for whipping the vote. How yeah. Did that, uh, I hated it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hated it. We had so many liberal members that some of our members had to sit on the opposition side. We had such a big liberal force at that time in mm-hmm. under Savage when. When we became government. And you don't usually win government, the other side loses. You've probably heard that many times. Mm-hmm. So we had so many members that had to sit on the opposition benches. And I didn't want to sit on the opposition benches. So when I was offered whip, I said yes. I wouldn't have taken the whip's position if I could have avoided sitting on the other side. But because I was whip, I sat on the government side. And the rest of our members sat on the mm-hmm. opposition side. So I took the position, but I didn't want it.
1: And how often would you have to, I guess, work with members that might have been likely to break ranks?
0: There were a few times with members who were what I would say renegades, and I had to do quite a bit of talking with those members, and... Fridays were desperate days to hold the House together because everybody wanted to boodle off to their constituencies and get home for the weekend. And, I mean, Cape Breton's a long drive. Mm. And it was very difficult to hold the House voting together on a Friday because the members wanted to leave. And you're not going to believe this. I used to bribe some of them with chocolate bars. Stay at least to 1 o'clock, I'll get you your lunch, or I'll get you chocolate bars. What does it take to keep you happy sitting in your seat numb? You know? so, oh God. Yeah, I did.
1: Wow. That, that. I guess it sounds like the job was more keeping them there versus like keeping them in line. But it was the, both. It was both?
0: Yeah, it was both. We had some difficult times with some of the members, and I won't name them, but you know there hmm. were difficult times. And some of them later sat as independent, so hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I guess from the perspective of kind of wrestling yourself with Kind of sticking with the party line. Did that make you a more effective whip? Do you think, or did it make the job harder?
0: Uh, for me personally, it was harder because there were times when I didn't want to vote the party line, and here I was making everyone, you know, stay on side and making mm-hmm. myself stay on side. I found that really churned me up, especially on the amalgamation issue. And you know, I, I was—I had a pollyanna out, a sort of outlook, rose-colored glasses, maybe naivety—I don't know. I just thought there must be better ways to make government work than what I was sometimes seeing, but I don't have an answer for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: what we're looking for. (laughs) Yeah, looking for an answer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, actually, maybe one little answer. I know that we have to support the government on financial matters when the budget is coming through. We have to be on side. But I think when an MLA is faced with something colossal in their own constituency that they, they must represent the people's voice, then it might mean voting against their own party. That's not going to defeat the government, and it should be allowed. You know, it's not, it's not allowed, but I right. think it should be allowed.
1: Any insight into how you could change that culture?
0: Well, I guess to change the culture, you have to look at numbers and convince the leadership, which would be the house leader and the premier and the cabinet, that's where the power sits, that it's a worthwhile endeavor to allow a person more freedom to truly be a voice Mm -hmm. for their constituents. And that's a sales job, and it also is a numbers-crunching job. If you have a large majority, one person, one constituency's issue it, it shouldn't wreck the government, you know, mm. but it should demonstrate that somebody's listening to the people and trying to do something. And maybe it would be seen as tokenism, I don't know, but I think there should be some capacity to allow a member to vote against mm. something their party's doing. I admire Bill Casey. I admire his guts. I really do. I think he did it,
1: mm. you know. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was a renegade behind the scenes, I guess. So. <laughs> well,
1: that's, I guess, another good question. And What we've heard a lot of is that many MLAs will choose to vote with the government because either they've already had influence behind the scenes and they've been able to reach compromise, yeah. or they're able to, maybe not on that issue, but work for something behind the scenes on another issue yeah. with that capital they earned from yeah. voting with the party. Does that Would that be consistent with your experience?
0: I think that's... A- a good thought around the fact that you battle it out in caucus, you battle it out in private meetings with the premier his mm-hmm. executive people. And uh, I think that is quite true. My experience in this riding, I had more schools built than any other riding when I was in government and they were needed. Mm-hmm. We had portable schools on portable schools. So money came into this riding, very much because it was needed, not as a reward. But I often have thought, well, would I have, you know, would I have gotten all that help along the way if I had broken with the party? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we had disastrously old school buildings and portables everywhere, and we had huge growth here in Bedford, uh, explosive growth. And, you know, we were building schools that, by the time they opened, they weren't big enough. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, From my early time as mayor, the Charles P. Allen High School was built and then Basin View South was built and Bedford South was built and a lot of school extensions were done out in the rest of the riding. So I sort of feel that was my success story and mm. I worked very closely with homeowners associations mm. and school associations that wanted this work done. Right. So.
1: And within caucus, would you have had... Did it feel like you had influence on shaping the government's policy before it got to the legislature?
0: I don't know how to measure that. There were certainly times when I was outspoken in caucus, and I didn't really care if I did or didn't have friends. Uh, I really didn't. I had a view, and I wanted it heard. And there were some deep divisions at times in caucus, but we had to come out at the end of a day united. And, yeah... I don't know if i I guess I had influence, but maybe I didn't see it at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and as a whip, I would have had some influence, right so there was always a tie between caucus chair and my job as whip, you mm-hmm. know, a little push pull push pull, and maybe it was authority seeking or territory wanting, but right. you know there was always that bit of a vibe going on that competition mm-hmm. who who was the bigger authority of the two of us, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Bridging between the role you had before uh, becoming an MLA, um, <coughs> you've obviously done a lot of work on women's issues. Yeah, and I'm curious how, I guess, during your time, what was it like to be a female politician in a place that's, I mean, probably more so then, but still pretty dominated by yeah. men.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm lucky. I'm strong. You know, I, I I could never be a pushover, and I was never intimidated by anybody. So it was tough, but I was tough, so that made it easier, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, running, knocking on doors, and I knocked on every door in the riding the first election. I walked off shoes like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. So, I can remember one day going to a door and a man saying, I'll never vote for a woman. You're a skirt, and uh, you're a nitpicker, and you've got a reputation of this, that, and the other thing. And I took him on, and I said, You know, being a nitpicker means I pay attention to detail. And so, what if I'm female? I'm an effective person that can get work done, you know. So, we had quite a debate, and he still wasn't going to vote for me. But three days later, he came and met me at my headquarters and said, You've got my vote. He said, I've talked to a lot of people about you, and he said, You're getting my vote. So, I thought, Good, because yes, I'm a feminist, and yes, I'm a nitpicker, and you can turn negatives into positives. In that case,
1: it happened. And was that a common experience on the doorstep?
0: Fairly, yeah. But I won.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: <laughs> so I must have convinced people it was okay to be all of the above. Right.
1: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, what can I say? Yeah.
1: And then in the legislature and in the role of being MLA, were there any challenges or, I guess, specific instances where it would have been a barrier? Being a woman? Yeah.
0: Not so much so. No. I, I mean... I think it depends on the personality, and I don't think that many people run if they're not strong enough to handle the job. Mm-hmm. So, I guess anybody who who would have thought they could roll over me knew differently. So, hmm. yeah, I, I can't...
1: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not making it sound like a welcoming place for... I didn't
0: feel it was a welcoming place because, not because I was a woman, it was because I was so strong on my viewpoint about Bedford not being amalgamated, and I was fighting my fight, you know, and you don't become popular when you fight your fight, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't in cabinet, and so I wasn't really reaching the people who were the decision makers, the powers in the cabinet, and the ultimate powers in the premier, and Premier Savage was very difficult and distant, and... It was very hard to get in to see him and have his ear. Even his whip was hard to see him. Hmm. So, you know, to to be in that atmosphere of knowing that the decision around my riding was completely and totally out of my hands. And I was trying to get that voice across in caucus meetings and individually and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it, hmm. was, it was tough.
1: And when you transitioned... I guess there was an election. You ran again. Yeah. You didn't expect to win, but you did. Yeah. And then you came yeah. back, and you were a minister of several portfolios. Yeah. What? Uh, how did your experience change when you went from backbench to cabinet?
0: Oh, it was fast. I <laughs> finally had some power to make things happen. My first day on the job as Minister of Community Services, uh, just after I was sworn in, my new deputy minister new to me tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must immediately come over to the office. We have a court case on right now. We're taking a child into custody, and the judge has to have the papers signed by you, the minister. And that was my introduction to my new job. So I walked over to the office. I reviewed the file, signed the papers. child was taken out of parental custody hmm. and taken into care. And it was a shock to me to realize, oh, my God, that's my job.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Welcome to the job. Any time a child was taken into custody, you would have been...
0: Only if it went through ministerial order before a judge, which this case was. Mm -hmm. And it did come back to haunt me a few years later on another case where the man who was abusing his child went to prison, and when he got out, he came after me. And I had to have hired guards at my house for a while because he threatened to kill me. And I had to keep the drapes closed. (laughs) So it was a job that had all sorts of Really significant issues to manage. Mm. And, um, yeah, to look at all the packages of funding that went here, there, thither, and yon, and, again, very bad budgets that we had. We were a broken government, money-wise, so, yeah, it was a really big challenge, and I loved it.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, I guess, at the, around the cabinet table, one question, we've been amazed at the variety of answers we've gotten by, so I'm curious to hear yours, is... How are decisions made at the cabinet table? To what degree, as a minister, can you influence the, the direction on something that comes before cabinet?
0: I guess it would vary depending on the issue. And if there, were, if there was something really contested, it would ride to the premier because the premier's the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. And a minister brings their own issues forward. The deputy comes in, presents the issue as well. And at that time, I don't know if it's that way today. There were a few times when you, know, you could question your fellow cabinet minister and say, could you look at it this way or will you bring it back? You know, mm-hmm. so, so there was some give and take. But we had a lot of authority as, as ministers of our own department, and it usually was brought forward and handled so that we had what we wanted. You know, mm-hmm. Now, the exception to that was the location of a new jail and uh, it was going to come to bedford and i basically in the cabinet meeting only had one supporter for not putting it in bedford and i knew it w- we'd lose the seat when the jail was located here it was kissing the seat goodbye we mm-hmm. wouldn't win and it was a huge another huge community battle very well orchestrated yeah i, I didn't get the support of cabinet not to put it here mm-hmm. I and tried i everything. Oh God yeah I mean I basically said to all of them and the premier you're kissing the seat goodbye you know you won't win it mm-hmm. you just this will cost the seat because the community doesn't want it for very good reasons and I had all sorts of huge community meetings with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at them against it. I brought out the Minister of Justice uh, other ministers to sit at the table and hear all this but It was done, the decision was made, it was coming out here.
1: And what, I guess, would, my mind just jumps to, well, jail's got to go somewhere. What, What was the alternative to Bedford?
0: There were several sites looked at and analyzed, and the Burnside Industrial Park, which is where it is now, was second highest on the list. No residential community around it. Full residential communities here. And the management of that, quote's new jail has, it's been abysmal. There's been all sorts of breakouts and this and that and the other thing. And I think it was the idea that the forensic center was going to be attached to the jail itself, which it hadn't been in Sackville. Sackville, it was just a jail. Mm. And it was also surrounded by residents, which was a mitigating thing in the argument out here. You know, well, nothing went wrong out there, but the minute it moved to Burnside, all sorts of things went wrong. Mm. I I don't know if it's the culture of drugs getting into the the jail now or not. I just don't understand Mm -hmm. it, but it didn't turn out to be a very good story. so. But I was faced with that, and I was adamant about it, that it wasn't coming here, and it you know, never got changed by Russell McClellan's government. So when the new government got elected,
1: it got moved. And that would have been when Peter Christie won the seat here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember Peter a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say the... The things you are most proud of are from your time in
0: government. Hmm. My own, what I'm proud of? Yeah. Schools. Yeah. I think I left my mark on the schools. Mm -hmm. I had a man come up to me a couple of weeks ago in a mall, and he said, you know, you were the best we ever had out here. I said, oh, thank you for saying that. He said, yeah, you were a straight shooter. He said, you were widely respected. He didn't have to tell me that all these years after the fact, but... It made me feel good, you know. So I don't even, I don't know if he even voted for me, but he just came over to me and told me that. And so I I feel that what I brought to it was my own personal integrity, and I came out of it with my own personal integrity intact. And it was a tough, tough job, and a lot of battles were fought. And the schools that I managed to navigate through in this whole area, I can go by so many places. So many parks, so many things that I personally have my thumb on, and I feel good about that. Most of that record, no one ever knows, Hmm. you know. And things that I did for individuals who were dying of ALS, we did pilot projects, letting them stay in their own home with full, around-the-clock care. It had never been done before in Nova Scotia, but I had constituents whose family came to me and begged for a different way of handling ALS than being stuck in a hospital on the equipment at $3,000 a day. And we saved a lot of money by creating a model to do it in the home. Saved the government a lot of money and made the families happier. Those are the things the public never knows about. And that's fine. They don't need to know. But I know in my own heart what I did. And I feel good about it. So what can I say?
1: (laughs) And I guess on the flip side, are there, what would any regrets you might have be? Are there any things you wish you had an opportunity to, to do over?
0: The only regret would have been to have stood up in the legislature on the third vote and voted against the government. Mm-hmm. I knew that would have been disastrous. But yeah, that's a regret that I didn't do it.
1: So you would have done that and potentially risked yeah. re-election? Yeah, yeah.
0: I think I would have... Won the next election with even more votes. I lost maybe a half a dozen votes in between the two elections. Okay. Which was really weird. I thought, oh, my God, after amalgamation, I'll never get voted for. But, yeah, that's a regret.
1: So you would have run as an independent?
0: I would have tried, yeah. But I wouldn't have gotten
1: all those schools, I don't think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, in my own mind, if there's a regret, it would be that.
1: Well, it's interesting, though, because you also said that the the things you're most proud of are oftentimes the things that people don't recognize yeah. versus yeah. standing up in the legislature and potentially risking those things yeah. would be kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. yeah
0: exactly. I mean, it was a tug-pull. I mean, there was always, like, pulling a piece of taffy. You know, that's that's what politics is. It's the push and the pull, and the
1: uh-huh.
0: it's the arena. Definitely an arena.
1: I guess we are, we've talked about the party discipline element of it, but kind of the game of politics, are there things that from your experience you would say need to change in in how we do politics in Nova Scotia?
0: Well, it would be nice to think we could do politics with more humanness. You know, the business of opposition and what appears to be an absolute fiasco in the House of people screeching back and forth. And I mean, that's... Kids come into the gallery and think we're five years old down there on the floor with all the scrapping and the yelling and the... There's no semblance of what it really is about when you go into the legislature and see it operating like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's a real, my sense of a, a, a lack of respect and humanity for one another when we get in that house bickering back and forth. And you just follow what's going on in the paper right now with Andrew Younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the biggest mess, just the biggest mess. And there's so many important things right now that should be being debated in the house And we're focused on a man's personal mess. And I I don't agree with that. You know, I just don't. I think we have all sorts of issues that are impacting us economically, debt-wise, bringing in immigrants and refugees. And my goodness, we're talking about a man's personal mess day Mm -hmm. after day after day. I don't think the church should be in his bedroom. I mean, the state shouldn't (laughs) be in his bedroom. (laughs) The church shouldn't be either. <laughs> yeah, state has no part in the church is what the old saying was, but anyway.
1: Because it seems like a lot of the people that are in the legislature and that have been in the legislature come from professions and backgrounds and families where that kind of behavior is just not what is common. So is there something about the, like what about the legislature is it that makes it kind of that? place where those sorts of things and those sorts of discussions are okay
0: it's a bit of a battlefield and I think in the backbenchers there has to be a lot of boredom sitting there not feeling that they're doing anything but warming the seat on the actual time Mm. when the legislature's in session that's got to lead to a lot of frustration and um, it's also I think the role of the speaker many times should be to Quietly have some meetings with caucus chairs and say, tone it down, roll them in. I don't know how often that happens, but, uh, you know, decorum comes back many times to the speaker and his ability or her mm-hmm. ability to get a handle on it. People need to be reined in.
1: And as deputy speaker, was that, was that something you did when you were there? Yep. Yeah. What was effective?
0: <laughs> uh, it was sometimes effective, not always.
1: Oh, sorry, What? what... What specifically was affected? What would
0: you. Oh, well, I'd meet with individuals and I would meet with the caucus chairs on rare occasions. And um, when you say individuals, you mean like the
1: the bad apples? Yeah, the bad apples. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bad apples didn't like those meetings, though. (laughs) I imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when someone gets ejected from being part of your party, they're like a pariah. You, You don't sit with them in the in the area where you go out and have your lunch or a mm-hmm. cup of coffee they're they're just stuck over there like they've got the pox you know and it's it's not it's really punishing environment it's a psychologically punishing environment to do that mm-hmm.
1: yeah. so what is life like after?
0: It, yeah it, well it's actually surprisingly busy and uh, i do a lot of community work and i sort of went back to connecting to my nursing's background by becoming a healing touch practitioner and a Reiki practitioner, doing volunteer work at the church around people who are terminally ill, Mm. uh, working with them and that sort of thing.
1: And is there, perhaps not now, but when you left politics, was there a pull to to stay involved or was it hard to
0: uh well walk away w- no i i did walk away uh my husband died a few months before the election and i was in such a state of depression that i knew i wasn't going to run i couldn't i couldn't go out and go door to door mm. so i walked away and i got over it eventually i mean it took me three years to get over his death but i did literally not re-offer mm. so in my history i've never lost an election. But I might have lost that one, I don't know, over right. the jail, you know, yeah. but I'll never know. And uh, no, I just, I couldn't run. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. And you're not tempted to step back in? Yeah.
0: yeah, there are times when I get the fire in my belly, you know, because <laughs> there are issues. And I think, oh my God, yeah, I'm old, but I still, I still could do the job, you know. So, But yeah. I won't, not at this stage. But <laughs> yeah, I think politicians take so much energy and need to be younger. Mm-hmm. younger than i am anyway <laughs> by a good 10 years so but i do i get the fire in my belly and um i pay attention to the issues and yeah and i'm wondering now what can i do to help the refugees coming in so because right. our church will get involved with that mm-hmm. so yeah that's my life in a nutshell
1: That was Francine Cosman, the former Liberal MLA for the Bedford area and former Bedford Mayor, Liberal Party Executive Director and Minister of several portfolios under Russell McClellan's Liberal government. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript podcast. We'll be back next week, next Wednesday, with another long-form interview, this time with former MLA George Archibald, who we've heard from a few times in the podcast so far. This project, uh, as we may have said before, is a labor of love, and uh, we're doing it because we think this information is important and it needs to be out there for people who are considering a path in politics, for people who are... Uh, working with politicians and trying to understand how they tick. And uh, we would really appreciate it if you are enjoying the podcast. If you've listened to a couple episodes by now, consider going over to offscript.ca and clicking on the donate button and uh, making a donation uh, in an amount for what you feel this is worth and what you can afford. And thank you to everyone who's already made a donation to the podcast. Uh, Even small donations will brighten our day and bring a smile to our faces as we're putting together uh, the next episodes. So thank you. Another way you can help us out is to head over to the Apple Podcasts page and give this podcast a rating. Uh, It takes just two seconds to give it a star rating from one to five stars. And, of course, there's space to make a little comment here, too, if you want to elaborate some of the things that are up here already. SmackDonna says have been thoroughly appreciating work done during the provincial election. Thanks. You're welcome. Weekend State says, Allscript is a well-produced and informative podcast for anyone interested in politics. Thanks Weekend State. Covers topics that are relevant across provinces, says Jessie Hitchcock, it's one of her favorite political podcasts, with a unique appeal to those of us in the Maritimes, immensely informative and engaging. NS Nick says this is a great way to learn about how politics in Nova Scotia really works. And Mashup Lab Andrew says, he loves the candor they're able to bring out of people. Great listen from behind the scenes of politics, behind the scenes in scare quotes. I have a new appreciation of why slash how certain decisions happen the way they do. So many dynamics and competing interests at play. Fun listen. Well, thank you. It's MacDonna, Can State, Jesse Hitchcock, NS Nick, and Mashup Lab Andrew. Uh, Your ratings and comments mean a lot to us and we're glad to be producing content you find some value in.